At 15, I fell in love with my best friend, Josephine, or Joe as I called her, lived across the street from me. She moved in when we were both 10 or so, and we hit it off pretty quickly. If you thought of a tomboy, she would most likely be the image you got. You could even be forgiven for thinking she was a boy with a short ponytail from a distance. Few would call her stunning, but over time, I found myself seeing her in a different way than when we were younger and spent our time catching salamanders and crayfish in a stream. She loves sports, loves going on adventures, and there are a few things she wouldn't try once. I love their adventurous nature, one that I wish I had. She also had her troubles. Her mother left her father and her, which was why they moved into my town, a shitty little mountain town in Pennsylvania. As our friendship grew, I noticed that she was alone a lot of the time, spending hours in the woods behind her house while her father worked two jobs just to keep a roof over the head. She was very protective of that patch of woods. Even I wasn't allowed near there unless she said so. Everyone in that town had money troubles, but Joe and her dad were worse off by far. My parents even gave her some of the clothes I outgrew. And while times were tough, I learned later that she wasn't really that alone. A warm June day of my 15th year found us on the banks of the local river, watching its muddy brown water sparkle in the sunlight. We had spent the better part of an hour swinging off a rope into the middle of the river and swimming back. Our clothes were hung on branches as we laid on the rocks in our underwear, trying to dry some before riding home. I stole glances at her and the image of her lying beside me with her tanned skin speckled with water and her black hair stays with me still. She caught my look and gave me a raised eyebrow. What's up? She rose up on her elbows. Nothing. I took a stone and skipped it out into the water. What's next for today? She sat up and pulled her knees to her chest. Got plans this afternoon. You? Plans? She was frowning when I looked over. What you doing? Got a date. I felt my heart drop and splash in my gut. She couldn't meet my eyes and I suspect she knew I had feelings for her then, but didn't want to acknowledge it. Dave asked me out yesterday. I nodded as it was all I could manage. I felt like someone had sucker punched me. Cool. If he gives you any shit, you let me know. I can take care of him if he gets out of line, but backup is always nice. She stood and pulled her t-shirt off the branch and slipped it on. What are you going to do? Probably go home and play some Super Nintendo. Nothing much to do around here on your own. Sorry, she said while tying her wet hair into a ponytail. For what? I'm more than capable of entertaining myself. Aren't most boys? Wow, really? Really? That's low, Joe. <laughs> I'm just calling it like I see it. Anyway, I'll catch you later. <laughs> she laughed and placed a hand to my head as she walked past me and then went up the bank, disappearing into the brush and the short trees. I sat there for a long time, listening to the birds call across the gap of the river and the sound of fish bubbling up to the surface and thought about how much of a dumbass I was. Finally... After ripping myself to shreds mentally, I got up to leave. The hair on the back of my neck perked up and a shiver run across my spine. I stopped mid-turn and looked back at the river. The feeling of being washed is always uncomfortable, but when surrounded by trees that created heavy shadows in their depths, the feeling is far worse. The birds had stopped chirping too and it felt like everything had gone still. I waited, my breath slow, and my eyes clicking from side to side as I looked for the source of the feeling. Nothing. I saw nothing, but the feeling stayed with me as I trudged up the bank. It didn't leave until I reached the road and hopped on my bike. I rode home and spent the day inside playing video games. Joe didn't come around for a few days and calling always got the answering machine. I decided to go over to her place, but knocking on the front door gave no answer. 
Their spare key was hidden in my house, but I didn't think it would be a good idea to just walk in. Still, I worried about her. As I walked back across the street, I noticed a group of five guys coming up the street, a soccer ball being kicked between them. One of them raised a hand to me, Joey. I didn't get along with most of the other guys in town, which is why I think Joe and I became friends so fast. But Joey was always cool with me. He tapped the ball back to the group and jogged over to me. His soccer cleats loud on the pavement. Hey man, he said, his breath still light. He swallowed hard and wiped the sweat from his forehead. Miss a great game this afternoon, man. It's like 90 degrees outside. How many passed out this time? Only three. No, no, wait, four. We brought a shit ton of water this time. You need to come play, man. You can be goalie. I've done that before, Joey. Never again. He laughed and patted my shoulder. <laughs> It'll be different this time. Besides, we could use another player since Dave didn't show up. He didn't? Nah, went over his house. Place is up for sale. Joey looked down the road and scratched the back of his head. He didn't mention anything about moving. When did you last see him? Joey thought for a moment and then cocked his head to the side. A few days ago, I think. Talk shit about a date with somebody. He grinned. Guess it went really south. I nodded and Joey went on his way. I decided to take a walk down to Dave's to see for myself. Sure enough, the sign was out front and the place looked empty. The windows were covered over and even from the front porch, I couldn't see much of anything. Something strange was going on and I felt even more worried about Joe. Did she move too without telling me? Did something happen on their date? Maybe they went into witness protection. That would be pretty cool, save for the whole not seeing her anymore part. I went home, trying to come to terms with the idea that I may have lost my best friend. That night something pelted off my bedroom window. I was awake, unable to sleep with the mind full of questions, and it startled me from my bed. I crept over to the window and peered down into the lake of the darkness below. Something moved down there, and another pebble whacked off the window. I opened it up and stuck my head out. Who the hell is that? It's me, Joe whispered and stepped closer to the house so the porch light could catch her thin frame. Can you come out? Where have you been? Just come out. I'll tell you what I can. She stepped back into the darkness now went to search for a pair of pants and a clean shirt. After a few minutes of quiet sneaking so as not to wake my parents, I stepped out into the misty summer evening and shivered at the chill. Joe? I started down the walkway, searching either side. She appeared from behind a tree and motioned to me. You better explain to me what's going on. You went into a murder or something? What? What makes you think that? She took my hand as she spoke and led me off into the road. Once there, she turned to me and pulled me into a tight hug. God, I miss you. Miss you too. So tell me why you disappeared. She released me and took a few steps back, looking almost sheepish. Kid, I mean, not entirely. Something kind of big is going on, but I'm going to protect you. Don't worry. Protect me? Joe, what are you talking about? She stared at the ground and licked her lips. Jeez, didn't think it would be this hard. Trust me, right? You trust me, right? Like, with your life? Joe, alright. Before you get all annoyed, just listen. Dave is gone. I know. I saw the for sale sign. I said and glanced back down the road. What happened on that date of yours? He cop a feeling you killed him? She laughed. But there was no humor in it. No, he was a gentleman, but he wasn't what I wanted. She started to pace, her hands in the back pockets of her jeans. I hope I didn't read this wrong. I'm still getting the hang of it. But there's something here, right? Uh, between us, I mean, and it's more than friends, right? It's not just me that feels that, right? I felt my mouth drop and found no words to say. A large part of me was sure I misheard her 
and so I stammered for a few seconds before she reached out and tapped my chin. Just yes or no, that's all I need. I swallowed hard, amazed at how dry my throat felt and how hollow my lungs were. With a deep breath, I nodded and said, Yes. She grinned, a look of happiness that I had never seen before. She moved to me, placed her hand on either side of my face, and kissed me. It was just as I expected my first kiss would be. Sloppy, wet, and amazing. I started to kiss her too, and soon after, she broke it off and took a step back. You got no idea how long I wanted to do that. Oh, I think I got a good idea. Yeah. I said and I opened my eyes to see her grinning at me. We stood silent in the night, the moonlight playing off us both. I had so many questions but chose the most pressing one. But if you feel this way, why date Dave? Her lips tightened and thinned. If we... If this is something we want, I need to get in good with my mom. And go with your mom? What does that have to do with Dave? I thought your mom abandoned you and your dad. She sighed. Should be trustful in relationships, that's what all the talk shows say. She seemed to say this more to herself than for my benefit. I can't. Not yet. Just trust me that you're safe in all that's going down, and that I'm doing it for us. What are you doing? I reached out for her, but she moved away and glanced at a tree line behind her house. Joe? This has gone too long already. I just wanted you to know that I'm okay. In a few days I'll come by and we can really talk. She moved toward me again and gave me a quick peck on the cheek before running off to her house. It was days later that I started to notice something. A lot of homes are going up for sale and a lot of guys that I used to hang around had strangely gone missing. The girls were still around and seemed just as confused as I as to why so many were moving. Joe's name kept showing up too, usually in connection with boys having a date or something with her. That part left me lost, not only because she seemed to be into me, but that so many guys would go out with her. Like I said, she was a tomboy and I remember most of the guys would make fun of her looks behind her back. They never wanted anything to do with her before. In the end, six homes were left empty. The last one I saw while in the front seat of my mom's car on the way home from the store. As we passed, I noticed that the person putting up the sign was not just any random guy, but Joe's father. I realized then that I had no idea what her dad did, but it felt strange that her father was there. I started to fear exactly what Joe had going on. No one had any idea the families were moving, and no one could recall a moving truck or even seeing the families move stuff. It was like they just flat out disappeared from the face of the earth. What could do that? I wondered a lot those few days, and wondered even more when I realized I was the last boy of my age around. Even Joey had gone. Almost a week passed since I saw Joe that night. Then one day... There was a knock on the back door where my family had a little rec room. It was where my gaming stuff was and a lot of my old toys. I was there working my way through Final Fantasy 2 as it had been raining all day. I hit pause and got up. Through the windows I could see Joe, drenched and looking tried and worried. When I opened the door, she came in quickly and pulled him into another hug, soaking me. Jesus, Joe! I shudder as the cold water shocked me. She pulled away, grinning wide. It's finished. You're safe now. Safe? Have you seen what's been going on? Everyone is moving out of here. Joey was gone yesterday. Not a word. And then I see your dad out there putting a for sale sign in the front yard. When did he start selling homes? A few months ago. He finally got his license. What has been going on? You know why everyone is leaving, don't you? She nodded, a solemn expression come over her. I do, yeah. If there was another way, I'd have done it. What have you done? It's mom. I told her about my feelings for you and she said she wasn't happy to say the least. I pulled her to sit with me on a broken and worn couch.
When did your mom show up? She's never really been gone. She started to fuss with the edge of her jacket. She's not a normal woman, and I, I had to do a few things for her to get her blessing. My dad is okay with me and you, but she didn't like it as she had her own plans. So, I've done as she asked, and she has one more request. Will you come with me? If you do, you'll have your answers. She was my best friend, the love of my life. How could I say no? Fear and anxiety were getting a good hold of me by then, but I'd do almost anything for Joe. So, I stood and she did the same. She led the way across the street to her house while the rain slowed to just a patter on the pavement. I thought we were going inside, but she continued on down the driveway and then cut through the backyard into the trees. She paused outside for me to catch up and then took my hand. We stepped in together. A few yards in, I noticed a smell. Was tennis smell different in wet weather? But this wasn't anything like that. The smell could only be described as putrid. I glanced around our surroundings, expecting to see a swamp or something of that sort. There were none, and the further we went into the woods, the worse it got. I noticed a woman standing at the base of a very large tree that was covered in what looked like ropes. Around her were tables of varying heights and were made from bark-covered logs. Beyond her looked to be a cave that had been dug into the side of a small cliff. She was very tall, at least two feet higher than me. She reminded me of a bird and how she stood. She had her long fingers folded atop each other, and while I couldn't see her eyes due to the bushy brown hair, I knew she watched every move I made. Is, is that her? I asked, and Joe squeezed my hand. Don't run, no matter what. Why would I run? You'll want to, I know. Just don't let go of my hand. She dragged me forward and into the clearing where the tables were set up. The smell somehow was worse here. It didn't take much time to find the source. The tables were covered with fresh and dried blood, like someone had butchered a hundred animals on them. Bones littered the floor and crackled under my feet as Joe pulled me to stand beside her and in front of the woman. This is my mom, Joe said and held a hand out to the woman. Mom, you know who this is. I've done all you've asked. The woman took a few steps forward. I felt my breath catch deep in my lungs when I saw that her feet were backwards. Not broken, but turned completely around to face the other direction. Because of this, she walked almost like the bird she reminded me of. I started to back away, but Joe's grasp of my hand was iron-like. What's going on here? You're alright. I didn't tell you this before, but my mother has always been here. She couldn't really live with us, though, because, well, people call her kind Sequapa. What is that? Joe moved in front of me, blocking a view of her mother and took both of my hands in hers. I didn't think you'd know what that was. She's basically a myth, an urban legend in the Dominican where she's from. She met my dad when he visited there years ago, and for the first time, she fell in love. Because of that, she didn't kill him, and instead they fell in love and moved back here. Kill him? I know, it's a lot to take in. She's not bad. No more so than a lion is bad. It's just her nature, and she can't survive on the food we eat. I dropped to the ground, my mind racing along with my heart. I felt sick and puked between my legs and onto the wilting brown leaves and yellow chips of bone. Joe came down with me and wiped the bile from my lips with her thumb. I think you know what she does eat. People? She smiled ruefully. Men mostly, and boys sometimes. I don't understand this. Are you, are you, are you like her? Would you hate me if I was? She shook her head, obviously not wanting an answer. I'm a bit like her. You see her as she is, just as you do with me. But many males, they see what they want to see. It's how she lures her food. Like a Venus flytrap, I guess. People are from... 
She ran her hands over my cheeks and shushed me. No, I, I didn't mean to say they were. She paused as if she was choosing her next words carefully. I, I love you. She wanted to come after you next, but I couldn't let that happen, so I did what she asked. I brought her enough food that she wouldn't even think of looking at you that way. The guys, the families that moved? Joe nodded slowly. I had no choice, not if I wanted to be with you. Not if I didn't want you. I'm sorry. Joey too? Dave? Yes. I pinched myself in hopes of waking up, but no such luck. My best friend was still knelt in front of me, and a strange woman stood behind her. From the woman came three loud chirps. They sounded like an old woman trying to imitate a nightingale. No, he promised. He has to understand and I'll answer any questions he has. The woman chirps again. He won't. Do you? I mean, did you eat pieces of them? Joe shook her head hard. No, no. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not exactly like her. I'm half human and half ciguapa. My feet are normal. I eat normally. But I can appear differently from person to person. Why? Why am I here? I wanted to cry, just to relieve the fear and insanity that felt like it would overwhelm me. She wanted to meet you. The woman chirped again and came around Joe. I looked up to find black eyes staring down at me. She wanted to make sure that you love me as much as I love you. If I don't... Joe stood silently. She looked down at me and bit her bottom lip. I know you do. Her mother reached out and placed a bony hand on top of my head and bent down in front of me, grinning to show pointed teeth. She stayed there just long enough for her pale face to be burnt into my nightmares, and then she stood. She went to a table and picked up what looked like a hunk of meat and tore off a piece and began to eat. So, are you satisfied? The woman munched thoughtfully and then gave a small chirp. Really? Can we go then? I don't think he could take much more right now. Joe didn't wait for an answer and instead came over and picked me up. We started out of the woods, Joe supporting me because my limbs didn't seem to work anymore. I think I passed out because the next thing I remember was being in my room. Joe laid beside me, asleep. It was the middle of the night. And as I laid there, I could hear night birds chatting away. Or perhaps it was her mother. Joe and I married a few years later, after college. I never seen her mother again, but I swear she still watches us from time to time. I get the same feeling as I got that day on the riverbank. Joe is pregnant now, and I worry that the baby may take after her mother's side of the family. She has already been having cravings for meat. But no meat from the store seems to help as she says it tastes disgusting and the baby gets upset. I don't know what to do. I'd hoped this was all behind us, like a bad nightmare. I've contacted her dad. He's still a realtor. I'll do anything for Joe. She's my best friend, the love of my life, and soon, the mother of our child. She was always talking about them. Brennan's thick black hair, Aiden's bronze skin, Josh's sexy biceps, and Will's tight ass. I was so fucking sick of hearing about all these perfect guys. Guys that I never could be. That look in her shining blue eyes. That lust. The way she didn't even notice that I was gut-wrenchingly, agonizingly, in love with her. You're my best friend, she told me often. I smiled and agreed, but I didn't want to be her friend. I wanted to be wanted. It took months of hard work, but I finally did it. I walked confidently up the stairs to her bedroom, smiling at my reflection in every mirror and pane of glass that I passed. It was amazing. The way a change in appearance changed my whole attitude. I turned on her light. She rubbed the sleep from her eyes for a moment before she focused on me 
and gasped. I don't blame her, I thought as I ran my fingers through Brannon's thick, black hair and admired the way Aiden's smooth, bronze skin glowed in the dim light. I really am a whole new man. Or, you know, the best pieces of several. Valentine's Day, 1998. I remember that day when I asked you to be my Valentine. That special bond I felt was going on between us was increasing and I wanted to take it to the next level. I remember the look on your face. The happiness and excitement of the day we spent together drained from your face like running water down a plug hole. You said no. I loved you. You know I did, so why would you do this to me? Why? I remember when you walked away into the crowd of lovers. I sat on the bench, crying. I walked home on my own. No one was at home to comfort me after what you did. I remember waking up and looking at the pattern of cuts from last night. The blood on the carpet was still there from last night. The writing on my bedroom walls was still there. Why? 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 It said. The writing said, all written in blood. I remember two weeks later. I saw you on the street with another man, much younger and better looking than me. The pain just grew and grew. Everything we'd done together had been thrown away by you. Every time we fucked, every time you told me you loved me and only me. I remember when I walked down that alley and that gang of thugs mugged me and killed me. I died thinking of you as the knife plunged into my chest, ending my life with the pain in my heart as the knife dug deeper into me. I could feel the life slipping away. The sheer pain was excruciating. I remember at my funeral, my friends and family were there. My mother was crying, my father was comforting her, and I looked around, but couldn't find you anywhere. When I died, it wasn't nice. All I could feel was searing pain through my body as if I was on fire. The pain was excruciating and I only escaped because I didn't feel complete. I felt I needed something more. And I knew what it was. Revenge. I don't know how I escaped, but it involved lots of pain. When I came back, I felt like going straight home to everyone and saying hi and letting them know I survived. Then I realized no one could see me. So I just decided to kill the thugs that took my life away. I could still move things, but I was invisible. It was great fun, and I enjoyed it so much. The first one I went for ended up face down on the ground with a cracked skull and no scalp. He never knew what hit him. I used the same knife he used to kill me to carve his pretty little eyes out of their sockets. By this time, the other two assholes had backed into a corner. I ripped the first one's fingers off with my teeth. After that... I cut his eyes out, holding them in the same hand as the others. I knew what I was going to use them for. I was going to make you a necklace. With the second shuddering in pain on the floor and the third in tears, I felt the rush and became even more violent. I cracked his jaw with the first uppercut and dislodged his head from his body with the second, as with the others. I cut his eyes out with the same knife and kept the eyes and the knife for later use. I knew where I had to go next. 
I was going to his house, the one who took you from me. I was going to be less forgiving to him when I first saw him. He knew something was wrong. He could sense me getting closer. I knocked him out with a single punch to the neck, taking out his airway and suffocating him till he collapsed. After that, I surgically cut his hole. I surgically cut a hole in his throat so he could breathe. I wanted this to last for as long as possible. He choked up blood and started to wake up, on the verge of death. It appeared he could see me. He knew who I was. But you, you were dead. He stuttered. He was so wrong. I cut his eyes out with him still screaming then plunged the knife deep into his stomach watching his intestines pour out onto the cold carpet floor. At least, I think it was cold. It was too drenched in blood for me to tell. I felt better after this, but not complete. I was still missing something. It was you. I needed you. I would never be complete without you. So I set off for your house, whistling to myself along the way. I was so happy for some reason. I knew nothing could stop me now, as I drew closer. I felt happier. You were surprised to see me. You cried a lot. I told you not to. You wouldn't stop and... I had to tie you up. I got angry. I shouted. I cut you. I put the necklace I made on for you. And you just screamed louder. I plunged a murder weapon that was used on me into your eye. And from then on, we were tied together in permanent bond. No one could separate us now. I was happy. I could finally rest. I knew I shouldn't read them. It was too soon. It was only a couple weeks ago I was clearing out my sister's house when I come across a bundle of love letters. My brother-in-law passed away a year ago and within ten months she followed. I was still grieving and yet part of me wanted to know. Part of me needed this to understand my sister we hadn't been particularly close in recent years. Life just got in the way. Maybe it was some kind of morbid voyeurism, but I wanted to understand her better, to understand how she felt in those months before her death. There must have been close to a hundred letters. Her husband was obviously a prolific writer. Some were long, some barely more than short notes. Always. He loved her. How much he loved her. He spoke of a photo of her he kept in his mullet. A candid shot he'd taken of her in the garden. And how he looked at it every day during his lunch hour. Because he missed her. He talked about the store he first saw her in. And how that day had changed their lives forever. Through his eyes I saw her in a way I never had before. Funny. Graceful beautiful. Apparently she was forgetful too. He teased her about how often she would leave the house only to return five minutes later to check if she locked the door. I didn't know that about her. Growing up together she had a memory like an elephant. I wonder how else age had changed her. He talked about how beautiful she looked on her 40th birthday. How stunned she looked when she walked into her surprise party and seen all her friends. I didn't even know that she had a surprise party. I guess no one had thought to put me on the guest list. I wonder if whoever organized it even knew she had a sister. Lee's letters must have been such a comfort to her, a reminder of a man who clearly adored her. I wonder how much she reread them. They look creased and folded. 
as though she had looked at them often. Some had smudges, I suspect caused by tears falling on the page. As I read, there was something nagging in the back of my mind, something not right, something that didn't make sense. I scanned quicker, my eyes leaping over the words. I love you, I love you, you looked beautiful, you're funny, you're this, you're that. Then it came to me, 40th birthday. Her 40th birthday had been last September. I had actually remembered to send her a card, a silly thing with a cartoon cat, sitting next to a number four, looking shocked and making the O oh, in the 40 with its cartoon mouth. Letters were all signed A, her husband's initial, and I just assumed they were from him, but Alan was dead before her 40th birthday. As I scanned quicker, I got towards the end. There was something more frantic and urgent about the later ones. The last one, just a tiny scrap of paper, made my blood run cold. I think it's time we met. I felt sick. There had been nothing comforting in these letters from my sister at all. With trembling hands, I dialed the inspector who had been dealing with her murder. Hello? It's Amy's sister, Joe. I found some letters I think you need to see. There's this painting my wife loves called Death in Life by Klimt. I don't know what she finds so fascinating about it. I made all the right noises when she showed me her beloved framed print when we were first dating ooing and eyeing and making up some bullshit about warm and cold color schemes, and the specific choice of angles and lines. She was an artist. Our first few dates involved long walks through museums, starting in Picasso's blue period and ending in heavy petting and blue balls. I took an art history course as an elective when I was finishing up my doctorate. I remembered enough of the lingo to charm my fantastically gorgeous future wife and lure her back to my stupidly filthy apartment. We're talking me as the foul bachelor frog, sitting on a lily pad made of empty takeout containers surrounded by a pond of enough unwashed clothes to keep a laundromat in business for a cool six months. I remember scrambling to find two of any sort of cup-like container for the bottle of wine we had brought back while she was in the bathroom. I rinsed out a couple of coffee mugs, and ran into the bedroom to try to clean up the condom wrappers that had been sitting on my bedside table since 2003. On the bed, neatly laid out against the rest of the chaos, were my wife's dress, bra, and panties. She came out of the bathroom completely nude, aside from a pair of high heels, took the wine from me and took a swig straight from the bottle. I felt totally, completely, and irrevocably in love. I have no head for artistic things. I work in finance. I get creative with numbers, not paint. But I freaking love her stuff. She's made a name for herself over the past few years. Critics call her the American Damien Hirst. One of her first exhibits was composed of a dozen oil paintings of rotting pastries, surrounding an actual cake filled with thousands of dead ladybugs, being fed to a mummified tarantula dressed up as Little Miss Muffet. I have no idea what it meant, but it was sick, successful, and catered by Balthazar, so I ate about 20 croissants. They did not have bugs in them. I checked. She was amazing. She had the body of a Laker girl, and the face of a Modigliani model, and still does. She's charming, charismatic, deep, the kind of person people flock to, want to be around constantly. She made love like she had something to prove. She had a twisted sense of humor. As soon as I hooked a job with enough figures to keep a girl like her satisfied the way she should be, I proposed. Bought her a historical brownstone in the city, with a garden full of roses and hardwood mahogany floors. And for the first few years, she seemed happy. We were the kind of couple you would see in New York Magazine and scoff at because they're just too damn lucky 
but we had a rough spot, like all married couples do. She was still superficially the same woman I fell in love with. Looked amazing. People always asked me when she was going to host the next dinner party. She still had an amazing eye for art. I knew, though. I knew she was miserable. I could see it. The misery. In the corner of her eyes and the curve of her mouth. It happened gradually. First it was the shower curtain. She bought three or four from a small boutique downtown. Brought them home so we could choose one out together. We decided on one. Pale blue. Made of material that was impractical and way too expensive for a drapery in a bathroom. But we had the money, and it made her happy, so why the hell not? A few days later, I was shaving and realized she hadn't put the curtain up. It wasn't until about a month later that I caught a glimpse of it hanging up in her studio, cut to shreds and died till it was almost unrecognizable. I chose to ignore it, because I'd learned it's usually not the best course of action to call an artist out on their creative license, unless you want to start an all-out war with no discernible end. A year after that, though, I had no choice. She had been so on edge it was like she was standing on a razor. She usually had a show every three, four months or so. And if anything, she had too many ideas. The galleries always asked her to trim down her collections. When the year passed without so much as a single finished painting, I started to worry, both about her well-being and our bank account. We were extravagant spenders, and each of our shows would bring in a cool $20,000 that paid for a few months of European beaches and ski trips in Aspen. The final straw, though, is when she burned down the roses. It turned out she had finished dozens of projects over the year, but she had hated all of it and had either destroyed or painted over everything. While I was at the office, she flew off the handle, doused about 16 canvases in lighter fluid, and set the yard on fire. When I got the call from the fire department, I rushed home to find her sitting in the back of the ambulance, covered in ashes, blonde hair singed at the ends. She was smoking a cigarette. I looked over the burnt flowers, skeletons of her paintings, the ruined limbs of broken sculptures, and asked her what happened and why. She took a drag of the cigarette and said, It was mine to burn. She took big, fancy pictures of the inferno. A family of bunnies suffocated in the smoke. She had them stuffed and mounted in size order on a baking soda volcano, like the kind you see in middle school science fairs. She gathered up a few charred bits and pieces, wired it together, and made some warped, pained-looking kind of phoenix thing weighing in at 400 pounds, and easily over 8 feet high. She called the whole thing, from the ashes, and the reviews in the Times called it incendiary, her first foray into becoming a true artist. Someone bought the phoenix. I pity the person who wakes up every day and looks at that strange thing, suspended in constant agony. We were both drunk at a random, expensive, vaguely Dante's Inferno-themed bar in San Francisco when I finally got a chance to ask her what was bothering her. We had been making dark jokes all night about the beautiful irony in her show and our current locale. At first, she vehemently denied anything was wrong, angrily pointing out that we had made four times as much off of her last show as anything before it, that it had more than covered the damages, that it had paid for the vacation we were on. I stayed silent. She tossed her newly cropped hair and looked like she was going to open up for a second. I saw her soft blue eyes fill with tears. Then she took a shot of whiskey from a glass that had a bull's head on it and smirked. Well, for starters, she slurred, nonchalantly dangling the glass from the bull's nose ring. I'm fairly certain I'm pregnant. She let the glass drop from her finger and it shattered on the floor as she slid out of her seat and stumbled to the exit. I sat there for a while and drank more, feeling furious confused and miserable. I remembered her face when she showed me that Klimt painting. I remembered how she wore glasses back then, and how she pushed them up the bridge of her nose when she smiled, 
as I talked about the freaking warm and the freaking cold colors and the freaking angles and lines. We converted her studio into a nursery. Rather, I did, while she stayed in San Francisco and did God knows what with her artist friends. I had a landscaper come in and replant the roses. I worked a lot of overtime, drank myself to sleep while I skimmed through parenting books. She came back when she was almost full term. I came home from work one night to find sonogram pictures posted all over the fridge of two healthy-looking twins, big baby girls. I walked into our bedroom and saw her dead asleep on top of the covers, belly swollen, smelling faintly like pot and paint thinner. She had a rainbow of dried paint on her fingertips. I loosened my tie and walked to the nursery. She had been busy. The canary color I had chosen was covered in a layer of translucent blue, and she had covered one wall in Klimt-esque patterns and curly cues. The creamy plush carpet was covered in paint splatters. She had worked furiously to finish. She had cut a swath from one of the new rose bushes and made a giant bouquet, shoving them so tightly in the vase that some of them had escaped and made their way from their perch on the changing table to the floor. She had scattered them in the bassinet on the windowsill. It was chaotic and beautiful. The next few years were peaceful for the most part. We bonded over raising the girls. Despite my wife's less than careful prenatal preparation, they were wickedly smart and beautiful. They both looked like her, with long curly blonde ringlets and blue eyes. Sometimes when I put them to bed, I wonder if any of my DNA was in them at all. They were like miniature versions of her. My wife agreed to see a psychiatrist for a little bit. She took some medication for a while. Xanax. Some mood stabilizers. Eventually she and her doctor decided her crisis had been hormonal and temporary. We started having dinner parties again, soothing the gossip that had infected our social circles. She stopped painting and took up teaching at a university. She seemed content again, even happier than she was before. Every once in a while, I would catch a look in her eyes like repressed artillery fire, like she was ready to explode at any second. But it never lasted longer than a few seconds before they went back to the soft, cornflower blue I knew so well. And who doesn't get a little agitated every once in a while? I rose through the ranks at work. I loved the feeling of power that came with promotions. I loved my girls. And by God, I loved her. My crazy, disgusting, beautiful, hateful, and loving, extraordinary wife. Then came today. Today, I came home from work early. Today, my wife took the day off to be a chaperone on a class trip to MET. They were after her for months because of her expertise in the art world. They wanted the children to experience the culture in the most sophisticated way possible. I thought it was ridiculous. They were one to three-year-olds in a private daycare. They saw more beauty in Cheerios than in Monet's water lilies. But they wore my wife down and she was given a gaggle of toddlers and wide-eyed teachers to tour around the museum. I came home for lunch because I had forgotten my iPad that had notes on it for a presentation I was giving that night. I walked through the rose garden and noticed a tiny piece of sculpture left over from the ashes exhibit from so long ago. It was half of a tiny bird. It had the kind of exquisite detail that my wife used to be so famous for. I was pretty sure it was an actual bird that she had cast in clay. I thought I could see a small piece of feather in one of the cracks. I idly wondered why I hadn't noticed it before. I went inside and poured myself a glass of orange juice. The fridge had pictures that my daughters drew. Happy, crooked stick figures that looked nothing like the beautiful horrors their mother used to churn out. I was happy about that. I hoped they would fall in love with numbers like I did. It was absolutely silent. I sipped the sweet citrus and enjoyed the nothingness. Then I thought I caught a vague scent of fresh paint in the air. Curious, I walked into the living room, and there was my wife, sitting on the leather couch with a bottle of wine, looking like an angel of death. She was covered head to toe with blue-gray body paint. 
with a special concentration underneath her eyes. She was wearing a revealing patchwork blue dress, covered in crosses of various shapes and sizes. Not a dress, I realized, but the shredded shower curtain from so many years ago. I could see most of her still perfect breasts, the curve of her waist. The bottle of wine was elongated and painted a strange shade of orange. The smell of paint was stronger in here, an overwhelming smell of lighter fluid, and something else I couldn't place. She had shaven her head. I stared at her for a while. Minutes, maybe an hour. Eventually, she took a swig of wine from the bottle, swirling it around in her mouth. I noticed paint, deep blues and even deeper reds, around her fingers. I sat down in the armchair across from her, unable to think of what exactly I wanted to ask her. Maybe because I knew. Maybe because I didn't want to know. I noticed a camera on the table between us. I went to pick it up and she rested her gray hand on mine before I could. Softly. Gently. With all the familiarity of years of marriage. She opened her mouth to speak. Soft, pink lips made pallid by the paint. They were mine. And I've been sitting here, knowing what's behind the door to my daughter's room, with the climped wall we never repainted, knowing why my phone keeps ringing with calls from the school, from the NYPD, knowing why I couldn't find my sleeping pills last night, knowing what that smell is, seeing in my peripheral the red pool staining the carpet from underneath the door, the pile of clothes neatly folded next to my wife on the couch, I can picture that thick wire she used to fit all of her subjects where she wanted them. What a perfect, detailed recreation it must be, because she's so perfect. I see the phoenix in my mind's eye. I hope, when she flicks that cigarette she's about to light, that we both burn.